Well, if you don't have a church Bible in front of you, you might want to turn to the most useful, uninspired page in the whole book. There is no shame in using the contents page every so often, especially to look up Lamentations. Because for the next two weeks, we'll be in one of those little books that likes to move around and hide itself the moment you let your Bible close. Uh, You should find it tucked away somewhere between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right in the middle. Maybe that's why we so rarely hear this book preached in church. But today, as we head into Holy Week, we're going to read from chapter 1. It's page 685 in the Visitor's Bibles. And they're long chapters in this book, and each one really is meant to be read as a whole. They belong as a unit. So we'll read verses 1 to 12, but we'll dip into the rest a little more widely later on. Lamentations chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she's become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Amongst all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festivals. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hands of the foe, there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, 
and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you? All you who pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Wow, amen. These are solemn, heartbreaking words, aren't they? But they are good words for us to wrap our hearts around. How do we prepare our hearts for Easter? That's the question I want us to think about this morning. Some of us were remembering this week about how just 10 years or so ago, Easter still held such sway in our culture. The Good Friday service was the one time I would still see visitors queue to get into church 10 years ago. Nowadays, I guess because we don't have a building, we don't even have a Good Friday service, and Easter Sunday itself just crashes into us so suddenly. We wave off half our neighbors as they disappear to Dubai or Spain for a week in the sun. Maybe we manage to prepare the roast lamb. We prepare the Easter eggs. But how do we prepare our hearts? For Christians, there really is nothing quite so special as Easter Sunday. The songs are ones we only get to sing once a year, but they're some of the very best. There is something so wonderful in rejoicing over the victory of our King. Even Christmas, for me, pales into comparison. Easter comes first. It is such a joy. But it is hard to enter into the joy of that day when we haven't traveled through Holy Week. We need to feel the weight of the cross in all its horror and sorrow before we can rejoice the way we really should. But sometimes those feelings are hard to conjure up, aren't they? Well, thankfully, there is a book in the Bible written to help us with the feels, to help us grieve our sin and absorb the awful reality of what it is and what it does to us and what it costs, which makes this a wonderful little book to expose our hearts to as we head into Easter week, the book of Lamentations. One way that God can help us to feel something rather than just understand it is through poetry and song. If you travel to the deep south in the US at the turn of the last century, you might have come across groups of prisoners chained together and singing as they dug a ditch or laid a new road. Just a few decades before, the fields on either side of that same road might have been filled with slaves, picking the cotton, working the plantations, and comforting themselves as they sang spirituals and gospel songs. They were songs that gave a soundtrack to suffering. We hear them still today, and they evoke strong emotions and pictures of an era that we can scarcely imagine. And in a similar way, these five poems in this book, five psalms really, give us a soundtrack to the exile, the moment everything fell apart for God's ancient people and they were cast back into the abyss of slavery. So Lamentations isn't really here to teach us doctrine, although it is rich with teaching, 
The purpose isn't just to teach us that the exile happened or even why the exile happened. The Bible does that in plenty of places. But God speaks with poetry like this to reach a different part of us, to grab hold of our dull, desensitized emotions and make them feel the way they should feel if they weren't so broken. This poetry is not about sunshines and butterflies. Lamentations chapter one is about tear-stained cheeks and churning stomachs and broken hearts. It's a poem about God's bride, his ancient people. But when we read verse one, we discover that God's bride has become a widow. God isn't dead, of course. Something far, far worse has happened. The relationship is dead. There has been a terrible divorce. And so the real tragedy is that this is a book that didn't have to be written. For centuries, God stood by this bride and warned and wooed and called her back to himself. But she wandered from him again and again and toyed with whatever belief and behaviors took her fancy. It was a kind of spiritual adultery. And after chance upon chance to repent, finally God's anger caught up with her. In 587 BC, Jerusalem was besieged, her king was captured, her temple destroyed, and all of her sons were carted off in chains to Babylon. And if you want to read the history, it's all there in 2 Kings chapter 25, a story of terrible, terrible suffering that grounds this poem in real human tragedy, real events. This is here to put the grief of that moment into words that we can comprehend and cope with. Every chapter of this book is a self-contained poem. Most of them are acrostic poems, by which I don't mean sticks of wood that are rather angry. An acrostic is a poetic way, isn't it, of forcing order and structure onto the chaos of the song. So each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So we only read half of our ABCs this morning. We stopped at the letter Lamed in verse 12. But that order, that structure, it tells us that these poems are written in a way that's designed literally to bring order out of grief. They're here to give Israel a language to express their suffering with. And we're going to dip into two of these poems together over Easter. Today, as we head into Holy Week in Lamentations 1, we have to face the awful consequences of human sin. There is a haunting thought that echoes through this chapter, just as it seems to ring in the air from the moment Jesus enters Jerusalem until he dies on the cross. The enemy has triumphed. Next week, though, on Easter Sunday, the dawn overcomes. We'll look at the very center of the book and the one note of hope as God's mercy is renewed with the rising sun. But we can't jump ahead, can we, to Easter Sunday? There is a kind of heartbreaking beauty to chapter one. It is beautiful in its own way, but it is a sad, sad story. And I hope in those tears... 
we'll see two things this morning. First, the crimson stain. This is a lament over terrible, tragic guilt and shame. But there as well, in the background, I think we'll be able to see the crucified Savior. And so we won't leave this lament until we've sung it for him. First then, and it is the dominant message of the whole song, the crimson stain. The overwhelming subject of this first poem is the heartbreaking, humiliating consequences of Israel's sin and her fall from grace. She feels stained forever with shame and regret. We're meant to leave here feeling deep within us just how broken and humiliated sin leaves us as human beings. And above all, that great sin of turning our backs on the God who loves us to run after other playthings. So as the lament plays out, there are three haunting consequences of that sin that she comes back to again and again and again. Lonely isolation, shameful degradation, and bitter realization. In other words, sin is isolating, sin is shameful, and sin, sin fills us with regret, doesn't it? Three truths I imagine every one of us knows all too well. But how often do we lament over that? It's in our Bibles because we're meant to lament. Well, the isolation hits us right from the start, doesn't it? How lonely sits the city that was once so full of people. Verse 2, she sobs through the night, tears stinging her cheeks. And the hardest line of all, the line that's repeated five times over the chapter, she has no one left to comfort her. Her lovers, all the things she's worshipped and trusted in, they let her down when she most needs them. I think the most harrowing moment comes down in verse 17. Just look at this. She's pictured there as an old lady suffering alone and desperate just for the comfort of human touch. But she stretches out her hands and there's nobody there to hold them. None to comfort her. Doesn't it break your heart? It's the thing many of us fear most about aging, isn't it? The thing we found so cruel over the last few years, you can almost picture her there in the nursing home, abandoned behind a wall of plastic and sterile gloves, not one familiar face, not one gentle hand, starved of human touch. And it takes a while in the lament for the reasons to become clear. We get... Another picture in verse 4 of Zion, the holy city, but it's like the opening scenes from some post-apocalypse film. Her streets should be full of worshippers, festival-goers, laughter and love and joy, but there's not a soul in sight, just the sound of a gate swinging in the wind. Imagine Princess Street lying in ruins, that huge... Christmas market, completely deserted. And we're wondering, what happened here? Where is everyone? And at last, verse 5, the answer. An enemy has done this, but it's because God himself 
has afflicted her and called her to account at last for her sins. That's the reason. This is no ordinary lament over ordinary suffering. She hasn't lost her husband, this widow. She's driven him away. Look at verse 14. Isn't this such a powerful picture? God has taken her own sins and he's woven them into a rope, a yoke that becomes her chain. All of this is just the consequence of a long life lived without him. Isolation is a terrible, terrible thing, but sin does that to us. It cuts us off from one another. It poisons every relationship it touches. And most of all, sin poisons our enjoyment of God and his friendship. Nothing isolates us more than this sin of spiritual adultery, giving the love and trust that belongs to God alone to things that just don't deserve them. Then there is the shameful degradation. So much of the pathos here comes by seeing how far she's fallen, from what heights she's fallen. Verse one, she who was once a princess has become a slave. Verse three, Israel was a land meant for rest and joy, but instead of rest in the promised land, now she has hard labor among the nations and nowhere to lay her head. Verse seven, she remembers all her precious things, all the glory that was, how kind God was to her, how patient. Nothing is so painful, is it, as flicking through an old photo album, all the smiling faces that you've lost. Once she was glorious. Now, verse four, her invitations go unanswered. Nobody comes. No one comes to the festivals. And the reason is that she is disgraced and publicly shamed. Verse eight, she's become filthy, naked, stained, and all the world can see it. The thing that was Jerusalem's crowning glory, the thing that made her what she was, is gone forever. What was it that all those people came for? What made her so special? Well, it's that she was the holy city, the place where God dwelled, the place of the temple. Now, verse 10, the temple itself has been violated. Her holiness is in tatters. The place where God dwelled is exposed and corrupt. The nations have forced themselves into her sanctuary. It's horrible, horrible imagery there. And so things will never be the same. Sin is shameful. It is so degrading, isn't it? It robs us of our dignity, of what we are, of all that we're meant to be. And finally, sin fills us with regret. That's the last big theme of her lament, bitter realization. Yes, the enemy has triumphed three times. That awful truth is repeated, but there is something much, much worse the enemy has triumphed and God has done it. The second half of the chapter is 
a lament in Jerusalem's own voice. It's the widow who's doing the singing now, and it's that which haunts her. Look at verse 16. For these things I weep. What things? That it is my God and my lover and my friend who's so angry with me. He has done it. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15. He, 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 he. God is behind this. And horror of horrors, he is absolutely right. She entirely deserves it. Verse 18, I think, is the key to her whole lament, the awful, awful realization she's been brought to. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Warning after warning, he sent me, and I ignored them all. And so now, verse 20, my stomach churns and my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In a strange way, that is the most hopeful moment there in this whole lament. Because only God can save you from God. At last she knows that it is God who is against her. And at least, at last, She's come to him, confessing that guilt. Only the one who is responsible for this can drag you out of it. Only God can save you from God. So you have to bring this sort of brokenness and sin and shame to him. One thing we have to remember as we work through this poem is that although in the poem it is one woman crying out, she, she represents a whole city, doesn't she? This isn't just her individual guilt. We're quick as modern readers to individualize the Bible, but God deals with us in covenant. He deals with us as a people. Israel as a people were God's bride. Israel as a people had betrayed the marriage. But one thing that is very, very hard is for a whole people to recognize collectively their guilt and repent of it. I think that does help us to apply this in a slightly more rounded way. It's hard not to think, isn't it, of the church in our day and how hard we as a church have fallen from glory over the past few centuries, abandoned our post, walked away from the gospel, got tangled up in civilian affairs. We fight our own little culture wars from our evangelical corner. But I wonder how much we lament over the state of this wider church. Well, we have this book in our Bibles to help us feel the horror, the sheer utter horror of rejecting Jesus and his rule and to see what that truly means. Sin leaves us broken as human beings. An eternity of Lonely, bitter slavery and regrets. And it all invites the question, doesn't it? Is there anyone to comfort her? Where is the bridegroom? Is he gone forever now? And I think we must ask that question because there is a form of it on her own lips. Look at verse 12. 
Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Is there any sorrow like my sorrow? Is there any sorrow like her sorrow? She feels the answer must be no. But I think Easter tells us that the answer to that question is yes. Yes, there is one whose suffering on the day of God's fierce anger was eerily similar to her suffering, and yet infinitely bigger still. And that, secondly, is the crucified Savior. One of the things that makes Handel's Messiah such a work of genius is how richly he reads the Bible. And like many others, when Handel set this lament to music, he couldn't help but see echoes of Good Friday running through it. And so verse 12 became a tenor aria lamenting the cross. The question, though, is are we meant to hear that there? Are we meant to hear Jesus in this poem? The first time I taught this book, as a young preacher, I was nervous to run too hard with this thought. I didn't want the cross to push everything else out of the picture. And I, thought, I think there was something right in that worry. We shouldn't blunt the message by jumping artificially to Jesus and the gospel. This isn't a book that says sin and its consequences are tragic, but we have Jesus now, so everything is fine. That would be a clumsy way to handle this. This book wants us to feel the tragedy. But the more I've sat with it, the more I think it is right that we feel the tragedy of our sin even as we look at the cross and the one who bore it. And the reason I think that's right is that the awful judgment Jerusalem laments over in this chapter isn't random. This isn't a poem about terrible things that God sent in his anger out of nowhere. No, this is a lament about the curse she endured, a very specific curse, because she'd broken faith with God. Israel had broken covenant. She'd defiled her marriage. And so all the anger that she faces here is anger she'd been warned to expect. Think, for example, of the language of verse 3. She's scattered among the nations and finds no resting place. That's language that comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 28, the covenant curse that she would face if ever she walked away from her savior. Or what about verse 6? Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. They've got no shepherd to lead them into good pasture. It's like the anti-psalm to Psalm 23, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside greed pasture. That was the blessing. That psalm spoke of the blessing of life with God as your shepherd. Here is the curse of life without God as your shepherd and husband and friend. Maybe there is nowhere else in the Bible where that curse is spelt out in such a tragic way. So what is it telling us when we listen to this lament over that curse and we can't help but hear echoes of Jesus in his suffering? It's telling us that 
it was precisely this curse that he bore upon the cross. Jesus died for his adulterous people, for the people who had poisoned their relationship with God, broken covenants. He died to make a way home from exile, even for disgrace as deep as this. And here is the full horror of what that cost him. We see this lonely widow suffering alone, and we want to ask, where is her husband? Well, we've been in John's gospel together now for a while, haven't we? And John is often portraying Jesus as the great bridegroom of Israel, the faithful covenant God. But the shock as we read the story is that the bridegroom has come to stand in for his bride. He's come as a representative. So think of the ways that his story echoes her story here. It's a story, verse 6, of departed majesty. She was once glorious, a royal daughter of Zion, and yet we read in verse 6, all her majesty has departed. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, hangs upon a cross, naked, brutalized, ashamed. Just as she's painted here, he's killed in a way that is designed to ridicule the very idea that this man could ever be a majestic king, departed majesty. And the world looks on, and verse 8, he turns his face away with shame of the sin he carries in his own body. Look, O Lord, verse 11, and see that I am despised, rejected by men. It's the language of Isaiah 53, isn't it? Verse 14, the weight, the weight of my people's sin set like a yoke upon my neck, a crushing burden. His story, like hers, is a story of a desecrated temple. When Jerusalem fell, the sanctuary was defiled forever. We read that the sacrifices stopped, the festivals, the laughter, the songs of praise, they all fell silent. The one place on earth where man could enjoy relationship with God was sullied beyond repair, and God hung up the phone. But an infinitely more precious temple was defiled on Good Friday. What could be a greater desecration than killing God's own son on a cross? The one hope of relationship between God and man, the final chance of forgiveness, forget it all and come home. And that chance was spat at and thrown away. And verse 10, as the sanctuary of Jesus' body was invaded and polluted by the nations, the brick and stone physical temple in Jerusalem tore its robes in shame. Its curtain, remember, ripped in half, its holy place exposed to the world, defiled forever. And finally, Jesus' story, like hers, was a story of deriding foes. Verse 7, they gloat and they mock at the foot of his cross. 
with none to comfort him. And as that last hope of a relationship with God breathes his last, it truly does seem as if the enemy has triumphed. And yet behind the enemy's hand, God is working. God is simultaneously the executioner and the widowed bride, the one come to bear the curse. What seems like Christ's humiliation is actually the great, glorious display of his true majesty. What seems like the final desecration of God's temple actually opens the way up to a true, real relationship and forgiveness and worship. What seems like the triumph of the enemy is actually the moment Satan is robbed of his title deeds to every Christian body and soul. And so as Christians, yes, we sing this lament and we mourn for our sin, but we can't stop there. We have to look at the cross and say, even there, the Lord is in the right. Jesus deserved everything he got because he hung there for us and we deserved it. Lamentations helps us look at the cross as the cost of our sin and unfaithfulness and say, my stomach churns and my heart is wrung within me when I see what Jesus faced for us. Because I have been very rebellious. But how I love him for that. What a husband he's been for us. So how could I ever cheat on him now who bore all that so that I could come back to him? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's bow our heads. And have a moment's quiet. Loving Father, as we see the sheer horror of human sin, each one of us must say with your ancient prophet, I have been very rebellious. And you are absolutely right to judge and condemn me. And yet wonderfully, you are a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so as we look at the cross of your son and our stomach churns, and our heart is wrung within us as we see the cost of our sin. Help us, Lord, to feel it. But help us also in that awful sight to see the sheer depths of your merciful love and to cling to you all the more closely with all our hearts. For we ask it in the name of our faithful King, Amen.